So I'm going to, as I said, um, continue our series on Hosea. We love preaching through books of the Bible because as we do that, God takes us into subjects that maybe aren't our favorite subjects to preach or whatever it is, but the, the text begins to set um, the topic that we preach on. So that's why we love going through books. And today I'm going to read from um, Hosea 4.6. The title of my preach is Create and Redeemed. And these are two Hebrew words, to Yada Yahweh. And you'll see what that means in a little while. So Hosea 4 verse 6. It says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. The point of this passage of Scripture is what we're going to try and unpack today. Um, it's not about like being stupid. Like Some people are just, they, they make bad decisions because they don't have the, enough information. They're ignorant. And um, there have been times where, honestly, I've counseled some people and I've wondered whether they've gone to the University of Stupid because they're like, they're like professional at making bad decisions. It's like one of the other of the other. I think, I mean, there's some people, I, I, I turn to Linda after they've left and I go, like, you actually have to work hard to make so many bad decisions. You know, genuinely, like, and um, it's not easy to be that qualified um, in those situations. But that's not what this is talking about. There is a lesson in every book of the Bible, in every story, in every book, in every saying that comes out of every story that God is using to teach. He was teaching and speaking to the people of that day, and this is His eternal word, and so it continues to speak to us today as well, and that's what we understand. And in this book, there's this incredible prophetic illustration. Like I'm going to do my best today to communicate something to you, and some of you are going to catch some of it, some of you are not English first language and you're going to miss chunks of it. My accent's going to confuse some people that are new. And so all of these things, like part of it will come through. But God was providing a picture here that everybody could see that would, be, that would powerfully impact upon them. And that's what we want to try and unpack today as we go in here. God has called this man, Hosea, to marry an immoral woman. I don't know, we don't know if she was sexually immoral before he married her. Or if God was saying, this woman is going to become an adulterer and I want you to marry her anyway. She may have been a prostitute. A lot of people think she was a prostitute. But it's not clear from the scripture whether she was or she, wa she wasn't. And uh, I say all this because I want you to have this picture in your mind. Hosea, Hosea, Hosea hasn't just gone to the brothel in town and kind of gone, okay, you, come, God's, God's called, told me to marry you. Like, like this we often get into stories and we just see one little piece of it, like a slice, and we've got to actually allow it to be opened up for us. It's likely that Hosea actually knew this woman. Maybe he even grew up with her. Maybe she was a, a lady from the, 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 the town or the village that he was in, and, and he knew her. And maybe even from a, at a young age, he, he realized that this was somebody that his heart was drawn to. Um, but, uh, but then, and, and it's possible he, he loved her deeply. And God commanded her, commanded him to marry her, even though he knew the heartache that it would bring to Hosea. And so in hindsight, Hosea can write this, but we're not entirely sure exactly how that set up. The truth is that she does prove to be an adulterer. She is married to Hosea, and she ends up leaving him to go and um, to, uh, some of the translations say, to be, to be a wife of whoredom or a wife of harlotry. And... Um, and then despite her unfaithfulness, despite her betrayal, despite the fact that she's broken his heart, God commands Hosea to go redeem her and to love her again as a husband loves his wife. And God um, applies that to himself because in chapter 3 verse 1 he says, I want you to love her 
as the Lord loves the children of Israel. And so he literally has to go buy his wife back. Uh, I'm not entirely sure what the scenario was. Maybe um, she'd been, she, she was addicted to alcohol or whatever it was, or she ran off and she didn't have a place to stay, and so she was living somewhere, and she, she borrowed money and owed money until she came into some sort of um, debt or slavery because of the lifestyle that she'd been living. And now it wasn't just a case that she could leave, but she'd become trapped into this, this cycle that she was in. And Hosea has to go and literally buy his own wife back from slavery. And, and we understand this because this is going to point a picture to Jesus who buys us back, or the Father who buys us back at the price of Jesus' life, which we remembered as we took uh, broke bread this morning. And so Hosea goes, pays the money, and brings her back. Maybe he's brought a shawl that he's covered her with, and he's walking back with her back to his house like this. And her head is hanging low. She's maybe pulled the shawl over her face a little bit because of the shame as she comes home. Her three children are waiting at the, at the door of the house, um, wondering what's happening now. And mom's come back, and she won't even look him in the eye. And, and Hosea just shoes the boy and says, look, kids, I'll come talk to you just now. Just give, give mom a little bit of space, a bit of time. And he takes her into um, the room, and, um, and she's, she, she smells of alcohol, she, smell, she's, she carries on her, hanging on her is the, the smell of coarse men. Her clothes are soiled, her hair is matted, her makeup is smudged. She sits down upon the bed and she stares out the window like this. And Hosea makes one trip off after another to bring hot water into the room and fill up um, a, a tub so that she can have a bath and clean herself. And she's sitting there wondering what's going on. What am I doing here? And uh, as Hosea's walking out and before he closes the door to give her some time and space to bathe and to clean herself and come out again. He turns to her and he says, he says, from now on, you're living with me. You can put the next slide up, thanks. I've redeemed you and this is your home. It may take some time, but you will come to see that things are different. Things are different now. No more whoring, no more sleeping around. You're living with me and I'm living with you. There's, there's a lesson that God wants us to learn here that the, the people that were there at the time would have been able to see so clearly. They knew Hosea. They knew this was a, he was an upright man. He was, like, he was a good guy. He was a man of God. You knew when you did business with Hosea, he wasn't going to cheat you. You knew if he said he would be there, he would be there when he said he would be there. He was a man of his word. He, um, he loved God and, he, and, he, and he, he sought to follow God in every way of his life. And yet, here comes he, this woman that has completely betrayed him. And they understood how broken he would have been by this. He, they understood that not just his reputation that had been shattered, but his heart had actually been broken. This person that he loved, that he had stood up with, with all that he knew in his mind, and he made a vow to this person, I will spend my life with you, had betrayed him and walked away from him. And then they were stunned by his actions when he redeemed her and brought, his, brought her back into his house again. And they would have been talking. The whole town would have been talking about what was going on. And then, um, and this was a prophetic picture that God wanted to give to the people of Israel. And from it, we learned three things about God. Number one, that God suffers exceedingly from our rebellion and our unfaithfulness to our covenant with Him. You know, it's easy for us to think of God as if He doesn't care really what happens in our lives. He doesn't care about our sin or about our idolatry. He doesn't care if if we put our trust in our career or in our bank accounts or in our own abilities, whether we worship um, sex or our good looks or our popularity or whatever it is, like, as if it doesn't matter to God. 
But he, he paints this particular picture to show us the way that he feels about it. Like, he's saying, I want you to know the way that I feel. I'm betrothed to you as a husband. I've taken you as my own. And when you put your trust in these things, and when you give your heart to those things, you are breaking my heart. I'm a husband who's been betrayed by his wife. I'm a father whose children are rebellious. I'm Hosea, and you are like Goma in the way that you're treating me. Secondly, we learn that God loves unconditionally. Hosea is a type of Christ. In the Old Testament, you have these figures that come through that are, that are pointers to the one who is to come. And Hosea is a type of Christ, and he's, he's going to um, come and redeem us and save us and rescue us. His love, as we see in this passage, is unconditional. Even though she has betrayed him, him he is commanded to go love her again. And lastly, we see that God forgives utterly when we return. God forgives utterly. When we, if we will come back, He will forgive us. No matter what it is we have done, He will forgive us. So given the timing of this book, they, they suggest it was written somewhere between like 740 B.C. all the way to like probably 728 or even as late as 723 um, B.C. And that's significant because in 722 is when Assyria would invade Israel and, and brutally destroy the nation. And they would take many of the Israelites out of that nation and scatter them into the nations of the world and bring others that would come in there and would settle that place. And that's, that area, if you read in the New Testament, that's what's known in the New Testament as, as Samaria, and that's where the Samaritans are. So it was the Jews that remained behind, the others that were brought in that mixed together and became the Samaritan people. It's a, it's a warning about what is about to come. Not a warning to avert the judgment. It's too late. Uh, part of what Hosea is saying is, this is happening now. In Hosea 9 verse 7, he says, the days of punishment have come. And it, it was because Israel's rebellion was, was resolute. They were um, unrepentant um, adulterers against God. In 7 verse 13, he says, God says, I would redeem them. I would redeem them. That would means I want to redeem them, but they speak lies against me. They just were unwilling to allow themselves to be redeemed. They wouldn't come back to God in repentance. And so the, the judgment that would come upon Israel was going to be brutal. This was a, a, a justice for their wickedness and their rebellion against God. There was nothing unjust. There was nothing more than what they deserved for it. But with this judgment, there was also an invitation that when the wrath of God was spent, there was an invitation for them to return back to God. Now, this might seem like little consolation for those at the time, like you're about to be exiled to other nations, and it would be hundreds of years actually before um, this promise of God gets fulfilled in that reason, and, and Noel's going to preach on this in a little while. Um, but we have to understand that they were an adulterous people. Leviticus 20 verse 10 tells us what the law says about adulterers or adulteresses. Is that right? Adulteresses? Yeah, I think it is. That, uh, that they should be put to death. And so actually, because of their sin, they should have no hope. If God is a God of justice, all hope is completely removed. But God is a God of justice and of love and mercy. And this book is actually full of hope, full of promises of restoration and full of redemption. And, uh, and it all points, obviously, to Jesus. We need to understand that, that nobody is saved under the old covenant or the new covenant outside of Jesus. It says of Abraham that he longed to see my, Jesus said, Abraham longed to see my day, and he, when he saw it, he rejoiced. 
So even Abraham, thousands of years before Christ, is saved through Jesus Christ. There's a, there's a saving until such time as Jesus comes. And, and so we, we see this restoration and this redemption in the relationship between this man, Hosea, and this woman, Goma. The, the heart of God's justice and mercy together is seen most profoundly in Hosea chapter 11. Go read that chapter. Go home today and read that chapter. It is, like, it's cra- honestly, it's a crazy chapter. There's one, like, 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 God loves, I wish I could unpack it. It's just, but the love of God for us is, He, he will bring justice, He will be just, but he won't, he won't destroy us. He's always making a way and leaving a door open for us to return to Him. And maybe you've been on a wandering and a journey, and, and maybe you're like, wondering whether you can even come back to God. You need to know that God is always waiting with His arms open to receive those who have gone away. And so through Hosea, God is reminding Israel, his bride, us, his people today, and those that are outside of salvation, that aren't yet saved, that are far away from him. He's saying this. He said, though I've made myself known to you as a good and faithful husband, you have rebelled and forgotten me. Yet I will remain faithful, says the Lord, and make a way for you to return in that day, which is the day of Jesus, that you might finally truly know me. See, God is in the business of revealing who He is. That's what He does. And in Romans chapter 1 and verse 20, it says that His invisible attributes, um, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And so He says, you're without excuse. And so to every single person on the face of this earth, people that have, that have never walked into church, never heard the Bible, God's divine attributes and His nature have been revealed to us so that we are without excuse. But to his covenant people, Israel, he revealed himself even more explicitly. And he did it for a reason. The point he revealed himself to Israel was so that they would pursue God and provoke the nations around them to jealousy and be a light to those nations so that all the nations could come to God. Even under the old covenant, there are prophecies of uh, 10 people, 10 foreigners taking a hold of the cloak of one Israelite and saying, um, you know who God is. We're going to go up to the mountain of God to worship with you. And so the point of this covenant people was always that others would be drawn into this relationship with God. And so Isaiah's kind of pointing his finger and saying, you are without excuse. God has revealed himself to you. Maybe those outside there haven't seen us clearly, but you know him. And he goes and he lists the way that God has revealed himself. He has revealed himself as a good husband, as we see in chapter 2 and verse 16. He's a provider, he is a healer, and he is a protector. And then he says, though you've known me, you have forgotten me. And the, the judgment comes in, and the third of Hosea's children is a, is a young boy named Lo-Ami, which means not my people. And so this, these people that have known God have now be, and that are his people have become not my people. And the, this forgetfulness is not like, like, a, like you can't remember, is it Matthew, Luke, James, John, what are, like, what are the Gospels? Like, you know, I can't remember what they are. Um, that's not that kind of forgetfulness. This is, a, this is a, a wrong thinking. This is a familiarity with the things of God. When Linda and I were young, we were going to go away for a, a holiday, and we are going to go camping together for a couple of nights, and my dad wanted to come speak to me about the dangers of sexual relationships before marriage, and he was one, trying to warn me about being in a tent alone with Linda at a very vulnerable age, and he was 100% right, but my dad was a little bit uncomfortable talking about these things, so he, he kind of spoke to me in kind of cryptic language, but I have to believe 
But, but believe me, I remember exactly what he said. He said, Rob, you're going out with Linda? Yeah. You can stay in tent together, just the two of you? Yes. He goes, don't forget this. Familiarity breeds contempt. And he's saying, if I treat Linda as something casual, if I treat her in a familiar way, it's actually going to turn into contempt for her. And when we become familiar with the things of God, we become contemptuous of it. We, we no longer see it rightly. I, did, I would no longer see Linda as she is, as my bride-to-be, as this precious daughter of the living God. She just becomes some expression of my pleasure or something like that. And God is saying, you, you have to see me rightly as well. When we don't see him right, we have forgotten. And God accuses Israel four times. He says, um, you went off after, your, after your lovers and you forgot me in chapter 2 and verse 13. You've forgotten the law of your God. Uh, chapter 8 verse 4, Israel has forgotten its maker. And so what happens is instead of knowing God, instead of knowing Him and who He is, they've, they've turned elsewhere. In chapter 2 and verse 5, um, Israel, he puts these words in the mouth of Israel and says, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. I will go after my lovers. My career will provide for me. The, the house that I've bought will provide for me. The, the, the living in Dubai will provide for me. Whatever it is, we, we've, we've put our trust in something else. And God's appraisal comes in chapter 2 and verse 8 when he says this, she did not know, she did not know, she did not yada that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold. And then he says the same thing about him himself as a healer. Israel again, he says, when Ephraim, which is another name for Israel, saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king, but he is not able to cure you. And again, God's judgment comes in 11 verse 8 when he says, they did not know, they did not yada that I healed them. And so we, we, we might have head knowledge that God is our provider. If I'd say to you, who's your provider? Yes, God's my provider. But with our actions, we're proving that our dependence is on something else. Um, and so we end up relying upon the nations that cannot take care of us. And that's what's so tragic about the story. That God is this faithful husband to us that wants to care for us and provide for us. And we turn around and we rely upon our lovers, upon something else. And uh, the, the tragedy is this, in chapter 4 and verse 10, it says, um, They will eat and not be satisfied. They will play the whore, but not multiply. And at the end of all this, there's this judicial divorce that takes place. In chapter 2 and verse 2, it says, For she is not my wife. It's done. But that's not the end of the story. In chapter 2, verse 14 and 15, God says this, I will allure her. I will Woo her back. I will draw her back in, in my love as I woo her. I will bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of a core a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And then in verse 20, this incredible new covenant promise, a promise that can only be made on the basis of the finished work of Jesus Christ, when he says this, And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. You shall yada Yahweh. And this word yada, it's, it's a cool word. I mean, it's, it's not a Star Wars, Star Wars word. It's not Yoda, just to be clear. It's a Hebrew word. But I, it's like, I'm definitely going to throw this into just general conversation. And what yada means is it's not head knowledge. It's 
personal knowledge. It's, no, it's a difference between knowing about somebody and knowing somebody. So you might say, let me just tell you about my dad, and you can tell me everything about your father, and I'll know about him, but I don't know him. But Linda, I know. And it's used um, throughout the scriptures. It's used literally, figuratively, and euphemistically. Which You know what a euphemism is, when you use a word that seems small, but it actually describes something else entirely. And so it says in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 1 that Adam yadded Eve, his wife. And yadda, and that means that he had, he was, had sexual intimacy with, with her. And so there's something, this, this word is describing something so incredibly deep. Obviously, that isn't what it means in our relationship with God, except to the extent that God's inviting us to know Him in a way that is intimate, unique, um, exclusive. Like, like, I know Linda in a way that I can never know anybody else. That's, that's what it means when Adam yadded Eve. And Linda knows me in a way that she can know no other person on the face of the earth. And it's saying to us that our relationship with God is going to go to such depths that we, will, we, we know God. We're not just, we don't just know of God, we know Him. And in the context of um, Hosea, it's speaking of a warm, close, passionate, experiential intimacy plus head knowledge. And uh, when we come to God in Christ, this knowing... Is, is the thing that produces an, an edge in the lives of believers that enables us to trust God and to see what He is doing. We, we, we're not religious. We don't just go to a, a book to get a set of rules for ourselves and, and hopefully we get five steps in order to be a, a happier version of me. No, no. We know the living God. And that's the invitation that Hosea is extending, the promise that he's making to the people. You don't know Him. You think you know Him. You say you know Him, but you don't know Him. And he, he goes throughout this book, proving it. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, but through Christ we're invited to come to know God, to Yada, Yahweh, our Father. To the man or woman here that is on a spiritual journey that hasn't yet come into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, the Father stands like Hosea at the door and turns to look at us that are, that are lost in our sin, uh, soiled, Clothes, matted hair, smudged makeup, tears running down our face. And he says, things are different. I've redeemed you now. You're living with me and I'm living with you. The invitation is there for you to come into that saving relationship and to be restored into that love relationship with God that he intended. To the son and the daughter, there's an invitation and a warning. And the warning is this, is that friends, though we are, once we are saved, we are saved. I believe that once saved, always saved. Once we come to Jesus Christ and we are born again, we can't be unborn again and then born again again and then unborn again 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 and then born again 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 and again. Some of you might disagree with me, but I believe the finished work of Christ, that once it's started and it's applied to our life, is completely enough. And so nothing I say should bring any sense of insecurity to your life if you belong to Jesus Christ, that you're going to suddenly fall away from Him because of this sin or that sin that you commit. But there is an invitation here for us to um, receive the fullness of the inheritance that God has for us in this life and in the life to come. In this life, there's inheritance of um, what comes with the working at our, of our salvation, the peace and joy. Uh, you could be stuck in the, the most terrible place on the earth right now, and you can have peace and joy because that's our inheritance in this life. You can be in the most amazing situation, in the biggest home with the greatest view and the most servants and the nicest cars, and you could have no peace and no joy in your life because you, haven't, you don't know God. And the invitation for us is to know Him. 
And then obviously our eternal rewards as well. And so how do we, and I'm going to give you four points as I bring this to a close today. How do we yada Yahweh? My, my great fear, friends, is that you sit here on a Sunday and you come and you, and you really enjoy church. You, you like the way that the, the music goes. Maybe you, you're really stirred by the music. But you don't grow deeper into your relationship with God. You don't come to know Him more and more. I, I, I'll often say this. The thing that uh, I find most attractive, and, and by this word I don't mean the way that you think of the word attractive, in other men, is men who love Jesus. Men who are unashamed in declaring their love for Jesus. They're not so much so that they won't say, I love Jesus. They're not, they're not so much they'll never cry in the presence of God. Like, like do you love Jesus? And obviously, in ladies as well. How do we yada Yahweh? Number one, by knowing God's Word. How much do you read your Bible, friends? See, God has given us this most incredible of gifts. The Word of God is it's a record of the revelation that is Jesus Christ. And so if we want to know God, if we want to know Jesus, and if we want to know the Holy Spirit, then we have to be spending time in the Word of God. We ought to be reading the Word every single day. Every believer should read the Bible from one end to the other end at least several times in their life. There should be, I mean, I was reading this morning from Exodus, oh, the, the, the items in the temple. Um, there are some sections you can speed read. Let's, let's be clear, okay. And so, uh, and I've read that thing so many times. I feel like in my mind, I've got a picture of every single item in the temple in my mind. I've actually drawn them before. And so, I, like when I get there, I can go through them a little bit quicker, but not too quick because God showed me something in that passage I'd never seen before. And, uh, and I'm like, like, how did I not see this? And God's showing me something fresh, something new revelation. He's revealing something about himself. So my suggestion is that every person should have a reading plan that they go through. So I use a thing called Machines Reading Plan. There's a, um, a barcode. You can download it. It takes you through the Old Testament once in a year and the New Testament twice in the year. That's quite a lot of reading. It's like four chapters a day. Maybe it's too much for you. Or, or maybe on a particular day it's too much or whatever it is. But don't worry about getting it through in a year. Just stick to it. Maybe it'll take you 18 months or two years or two and a half years, but you'll get through the whole Bible. And then you start again, and you just begin to read it through. Spend time each day in the Logos. The Bible says of itself that it is, a, it is living and active. And so it reveals God to us. The Holy Spirit uses the Bible as His sword. And it says that He, he divides between soul and spirit, between bone and marrow. The soulish ways that we see the world, like, like my emotions and my mind. He comes and He goes, I'm actually going to divide, I'm going to get right in there. I'm going to speak directly into your spirit. And so we need to spend time in the Word of God. Number two, we need to know God's ways. God's ways for intimacy, for building a relationship, is prayer and worship. That's, that's what God has given us. So we would come to Him often in prayer and often in worship to build intimacy and come to know Him that way. And He's calling us individually as a church and believers on the face of the earth to go deeper and deeper into, um, into both prayer and worship. Exodus 33.13 says, if you are pleased with me, then show me your ways. And God wants us to have an absence of superficiality. Every time I say that word, it sounds like I'm about to break into supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Superficiality. Um, he doesn't want us to, like, we dress up, we come on a Sunday, we kind of, we're doing the right things. We learn a couple of good Christian phrases. Hallelujah. Amen. You know, I'm the head and I'm not the tail. Whatever it is that we, uh, we say to people. 
um, when actually God wants us to know Him. Imagine be, where we, Linda and I, you a couple, they've been through quite a tragic thing in their life where they lost one of their children um, many years before we met them. But that had caused such a, a break in their relationship that they no longer lived in a way that they were like a married couple. They lived like two separate people. They just lived on their own. Like they didn't know each other. There was no intimacy, no yada going on between them. And God wants us to be in our relationship with Him with this depth and intimacy. And so in prayer and in worship, we engage in those things. We need to be persistent in our worship. Come on a, on a Sunday to church, not to, I don't know. So often we see worship as a buffer, hey? It's a thing that happens before the preaching of the Word, which is a thing that happens before we get to hang with people and have coffee, which is really the reason why we come in. I'm joking. But, um, but, it's, but worship is an end in itself. Come prepared in your heart and ready to worship God, to minister to Him in worship and allow Him to minister back to you. Number three is knowing God's wisdom. In 1 Corinthians 12, it lists the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And the number one gift there is often the one that's wanted the least, which is words of wisdom. And uh, wisdom is to know the mind of the Holy Spirit and to keep in step with Him. No matter what complex place we're in, we can find out what the will of God is when we have the mind of the Holy Spirit. In the book of James, it tells us that if we need wisdom, we're to ask, it says in the New Living Translation, ask our generous God and He will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. The ESV says He will um, give to you without reproach. And the reason He has to say this is because sometimes we need wisdom when we have made a bit of a mess. So we, ha- we, we aren't doing things well. And uh, I've shared you, with you before that Coming to the Holy Spirit and asking Him to lead us is a little bit like Google Maps. You know, like you, you put in the destination in Google Maps and then you take a wrong turn. Google Maps doesn't go to you. Imagine I did do this. You idiot! What are you doing? I told you to turn left. What are you turning right for? Oh, actually, I wouldn't mind a Google Maps like that. That'd be pretty cool. <laughs> 50 meters, I said. What are you? Can't you count? Why are you turning off in 100 meters? Um, the, the, it doesn't do that. We, we take the wrong turn and we end up like in this dead end like this and it comes up on our screen recalculating route. And she says, do you turn, I'll get you back on the right track again. And when we come to the Holy Spirit and we ask Him to give us His wisdom, He will get us back onto the right track again. No matter how far you've gone, and maybe you've got to go a little bit to find the turn off, like Linda and I had to do the other day, because I, I missed one of the turns. Um, he won't, He'll give us wisdom without reproach so that we can find His way. Finally, we yada Yahweh by knowing God's will. Romans, two, Romans 12, 2 rather says this. It says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. And um, many of you have got your phones out for good reason. You're taking photographs of the screen or taking notes or whatever. I'm not judging you. Um, but like you, um, actually it's quite amazing. One of the ladies that's here today is in church because she found me on Facebook, saw that I'd posted something about Jesus, said, oh, you're a Christian. It's great to have you here. And then she ended up coming to church because, so social media is not all bad. But um, but so often that screen is shaping us and the way that we think. I was talking with Heath when he was here with us last week, talking about um, Friends, you know, the, the series Friends on TV. How many of you have watched that? Liars, more than you have watched that. I know, I know you've watched that. Um, and so, Lynn and I watched it for research purposes, obviously, from when we were young. 
we wanted to be in, we wanted to know what was happening in our culture and what was going on and yeah 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 we didn't laugh though we if there were people with us we laughed just so they wouldn't feel uncomfortable but when we alone we never laugh at friends obviously and it is it is really funny but it is unbelievable how that 10 years of TV um, impacted a culture. It, it, it began to establish a pattern of thinking that sex outside of marriage is nothing. You don't even, don't even have to think about it. It's absolutely fine. It's to be expected. Everybody is having sex. And there are no consequences ever for sexual relationships um, other than falling pregnant, which uh, that girl, what's her name again? The one character? Rachel, yes. yeah, yeah. I knew who it was. I was just pretending. <laughs> um, so she felt pregnant. Like, and even that's like, you know what I mean? That pornography is absolutely normal and fine in marriage, outside of marriage. It's completely normal. It begins to shape our thinking. And he says here, do not conform any longer to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. And if we are going to yada Yahweh, we need to be able to understand what His will is. How do we know what His will is? I'm going to give you an, an acronym or an acoustic. I can't remember exactly what it's called, but it says... I'm going to say this, we need peace. P-E-A-C-E. You guys can all spell it. Fantastic. Number one is providence. The P stands for providence. Are you making it happen or is the Lord making the thing happen? Sometimes we have an idea of what we want in our minds and we go and make it happen. Like Abraham did when he stepped with Hagar and uh, Ishmael was born. Instead of trusting God to fulfill his promises. Number two, enemy we do the opposite of what pleases the enemy. Sometimes, like there was once, what year was it, baby? I think 2004, Linda and I had a fight, an argument. And um, um, we did have one in 2004. I can guarantee you that. And 2005, and 2006, 7, 8, 19, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23. And I'm sure we'll have one in 2024 as well. <laughs> but sometimes the, the, it, it escalates a bit. And we get to the point where we're actually starting to say things like we actually want to hurt each other. Like we've, we've now gone past a disagreement. We now are fighting with each other. And then one of us will, will pause and go, who are we blessing through this thing? Are you being blessed? I'm definitely not being blessed. Are you being blessed? No. Do you think we're blessing God by the things that we're saying and the words that we're speaking to each other? That's obviously not. The only person that is being blessed in that situation is Satan himself. And I want to do the opposite. The will of God is the opposite of what the enemy wants. The A stands for authority, the authority of God's word. We cannot contradict the word of God. Don't come to me, or you can come to me. And you say, God told me to do something, and it contradicts the word of God. I'm going to graciously and kindly say to you, I don't think that's God, because look what it says in the scriptures here, and he would never contradict his scripture. And so if we want to know what the will of God is, it's in here. The C stands for counsel. And in um, Proverbs 15, verse 22, it says, Plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors, they, they succeed. We need to be talking about things to people. We need to be bringing it out into the open. Decisions that you're making, things that you're wrestling through as you're trying to search for the will of God. It makes sense for you to go to people that you trust and say, Can I just share this with you? And they, they're able to speak into it. They won't... Like, if you were to come to us as an eldership and say, I'm making this decision, 
You don't ask us for permission to make the decision. You don't need our permission to leave your company or to start a business or to rent an apartment in this side of town or our permission to end this relationship or whatever it is. But what you do want is perspective. That's all that we can give you. We, we are not the kings of your life. God has made you autonomous under Him in the decisions that you're making. But we, there is wisdom and counsel. And lastly, there's the energizing of the Holy Spirit. There's an anointing for the task. When, God's, when it's God's will, we, are, we find that the, the, the energy for it comes from within. Not, not us, but the Holy Spirit in us, anointing us for the task. Is it His will for you to get married? Then it's not going to be this grind. It's actually the, the, there's an anointing for everything God calls us to do. Ministry and life and everything else. It doesn't mean there won't be hard days ahead of you, but there's, an, there's an, a power to overcome by the Holy Spirit. And in fact, I mean, I would, I would add to that and say that if you are struggling in an area in your life, ask God for the anointing of His Holy Spirit. If you know He's called you to that situation and work, don't just say, God, give me the grace to accept it. Say, God, give me the anointing to be able to do this thing. If you're battling in your marriage, Lord, give me the anointing to be a husband. Give me the anointing to be a wife, to be a daughter or a father, or whatever the situation is. In Hosea 8 and verse 2, God, and it's my last scripture, God says, um, again, He puts the words in Israel. He says, to me they cry, to me they cry, my God, we, Israel, yada you. And in that passage of scripture, what He's saying is, you say it, but it's not true. I had a man once come, speak to me and he said to me um, I'm leaving my wife he's in our church his wife's in our church he met me at a coffee shop in town and said it's, it's over and I asked him my, I didn't ask him anything my first question was this what about Jesus but what about Jesus because if you yada Yahweh he's not going to do this thing and my um my appeal to us as a people is that we go deeper in knowing God. There's no, like the Holy Spirit and that GPS thing, there's no judgment. God is not saying, oh, but you've messed up before. I'm not going to let you come in. I'm not going to let you be a part of this. No, his, his arms are open. That's the promise of Isaiah that no matter what you've done, there's always an opportunity for you to return. And, and for those that are, that are in the house, go deeper in. Go deeper in. Go find Him or know Him more surely. Know Him as your provider. Know Him as your healer. Know Him as your protector. Know Him as your husband. Know Him as your father in a way that transcends any other knowledge that we could have.